the fiery collision of five fully loaded passenger airliners, what could have been on this podcast of Taking Off. Welcome to the Taking Off Podcast. I'm Dan Milliken. I'm here with... Christy Wong. Christy, glad to have you in studio this time, not just on phone. Yeah. No, it's good to be here. Okay. We are talking about what? This is this one, this podcast is the one you wanted to do the most. Yeah. This one actually really hits home for several reasons. Uh, this is the worst air crash that never happened. The worst that never happened. All right. Tell, tell me more. Okay. So oftentimes we hear about these um, terrible air crashes that at any moment could have been stopped. Okay, so we did the one last time where we talked about the Tenerife. Tenerife. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we talked how there were several links in the chain and how if any one of those links had been broken, this terrible accident would have never happened and there would have been just hundreds of people whose lives would not have been lost that day. This is one of those cases where the link was fortunately broken by a hair. Right. Okay. So set the stage. What happened? Okay. So it's super late at night. Also, I take special interest in this story because this happened on the same day I got my private pilot certificate. Oh, wow. 2017. 2017. July of 2017. There was an uh, Air Canada that was coming into San Francisco late at night. And the pilots had been uh, working um, for a long, they had a long duty day. Um, They were coming in and runway 28 left at San Francisco was closed. And so they were using runway 28 right. Uh, It was a nice, clear evening. And so they gave the Air Canada uh, visual approach, clearance for a visual approach. And so they were coming in lined up with what they thought was the runway, but instead they were lined up with Taxiway Charlie. And on Taxiway Charlie were like four other aircraft waiting to depart. And as they were coming in, some of the other pilots noticed uh, while they were sitting there on Taxiway Charlie, hey, this guy appears to be lined up with us. Okay, do you want to play the tape? Yeah, let's go ahead and, and play the tape so that we can get a feel for what was set up here. Okay, I have edited out um, silences, so it's not in real time, but pretty close. Here we go. Uh, good and uh, tower, just want to confirm, uh, Air Canada 759, uh, we see some lights on the uh, runway there. Can confirm a clear to land? Air Canada 759, confirm clear to land, runway 2 right there is no one on 2 right So that's our first right indicator that something is not right. Where's this guy going? Second He's indicator. He's on the taxiway. Air Canada, go around. In the go around, Air Canada 759. 759, looks like you were lined up for Charlie there. Uh, flight heading 280, climb maintain 3000. Heading 280, 3000, that uh, count 759. 
All so right, then that's they, it. Yeah, they they come around and they land on the appropriate runway with no issues. But I love the the nonchalant. Ah, looks like you were lined up with Charlie there by the air traffic controller. Not really. I don't think he computed internally just how significant that situation well, was. Well, let's talk about the significance because people go, okay, well, I mean, he didn't land on it. I mean, I'm sure they were separated by quite a bit, but no, they weren't. Let's talk about how close that actually came. What are the numbers? Um, I think they were, uh, what, 14 feet? 14 feet is what it said, um, the, the closest it came to colliding with one of the aircraft. Yeah, 14, 14 feet. feet. So here, here's the reason why, too. Um, it's the same situation with the whole FedEx and Southwest and, and some oh, of those right. near misses where they were climbing over. When you put the power into the thrust levers, it takes a few seconds. There is about a six-second de uh, delay for the power to start making the aircraft do what you're commanding it to do. And, so they and, were and still it, coming down even as they put in the power, and now they're starting to climb out. Well, and I'm showing that even as they put in the power— they still descended about 25 feet yeah. during those few seconds. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's exactly what happens. You put in the power, and the aircraft is still descending because now it's got to take, it, it, like I said, it takes a few seconds for it to actually start responding to that input command. Okay, so how close it came was 14 feet? 14 feet, which um, we're sitting in the studio right now. It's probably from here to the wall. Like, it's not right. that far. Um so uh, people are saying, well, how could they line up with the taxiway? How could they not see airplanes? There was actually another incident back in 1992-ish. It was the U.S. Air and the SkyWest where it was, again, it was at night or about to be at night. And the SkyWest was sitting on the runway and he was told to basically position and hold, which is line up and wait now. He's just sitting on the runway waiting for um, clearance to take off. And the controller forgot about them. And at the same time, she gave uh, clearance to land to the U.S. Air. I think it was U.S. Air that was coming in, if I remember correctly. But any, either way, they were coming in, and they effective, they couldn't see because the runway lighting and everything, they literally could not see that little sky west there, and they wound up landing on top of them and caused a whole bunch of deaths, including deaths on the U.S. Air. So same situation here. The pilots are lined up for the taxiway, but they can't see, they really can't differentiate that those are airplanes because they don't have their strobes or anything on. They're just sitting there with their taxi lights on. They look like runway lights or taxiway or, you know what I mean? Okay, let's talk about that. For the non-pilot out there, non-airline pilot out there, your airplane at night sitting on a taxiway short of the runway, what lights are on? Just the taxi lights and like our standard nav lights. So nav lights, position lights. Yeah, position lights. Mm -hmm. And taxi lights are on, not landing lights. Right, just the taxi. And in fact, if and we're— And taxi lights are white. Taxi lights are only turned on if we're, we're physically moving. Oh, so these planes were sitting static on the taxiway yes. waiting for this plane to land on 28 right. right. So they did not have their taxi lights Probably on. Probably not. They, they might have had some other lighting or whatever, but the, the protocol is to— Turn the taxi lights on when we're moving, so that way we can see what what we're you know driving toward effectively. 
Um, but if you're stopped, then you don't need to see around you. We set the parking brake, turn the turn all the lights off, except for like the navigation position lights. So just the position lights. So red and, and green lights are, and the taxiway is lined with, again, for the non-pilot, describe the colors. Uh, the taxiway lights are typically green or blue. They're, they're, it, it depends on what they're being used for, but effectively your, your navigation lights are going to blend in with some of those lights and you're coming in from far away. Plus you're moving in closer. Nighttime presents um, a few different uh, like optical illusions that you have to be aware of, but there's other things that are contributing to this incident as well. Well, we'll get to that in just a minute, but let's, let's finish setting the stage here for, for those that don't understand that, excuse me, there were four, airplanes on the taxiway one had done a right turn and was perpendicular to the runway on the hold short correct uh, i believe so and then there were three that were lined up behind para- it yeah behind it parallel you know so uh facing you know towards what essentially is final approach so the second plane which was the first one that was lined up coming down they saw this plane coming in towards them they did what? They spoke up. And they turned on. They turned on their lights. They did turn on their lights. Yeah, they turn they turned on their lights because they were like, "Hey, they I think they wanted to make it known to the Air Canada pilots, "Hey, there's some you you guys are not lined up with the runway. You guys are lined up with us." So, here's in you know. So, that's one way that they broke the chain. The chain. Right. They and turned on their lights. They turned on their lights and then they spoke up. And they spoke up. They spoke up and to the air traffic controller's credit, because I don't think you could really see where, they, you know what I mean, that they were specifically lined up with the correct whatever. Right. But he just said, you know what? Just go around. Just go around. We're just going to send you around well, and bring you back in. he did say he saw it. He saw that they were close over. Right, yeah. But when they're further out, you can't tell which right. one they're Yeah, like, the controller cannot with. tell that he's not lined up. But as he got closer, the runway. you could tell there just was no hesitation there. Well, once, and the Air once, Canada pilot did testify later that he, reali- he he felt something was wrong. Which is why he said earlier, he was like, hey, we just want to confirm that we're clear. Because it, it looks like looks there's traffic weird. on there. Yeah, yeah, it looks weird. It's like, well, okay, it, it does look weird because you're not where you're Lined supposed up. to be. Exactly. Okay, so the Air Canada pilot realized it wasn't great, but... The, there were other problems with Air Canada. You mentioned fatigue. Um, also, what's this about the ILS and, and all that? Yep. So it was a nice, clear evening. They were cleared for the visual approach. Because of that, they failed to put in the ILS. Well, which let's, is the, let's, again, for the non-airline pilot or non-pilot, they were cleared for the visual approach. What does that mean to a non-pilot? Literally, I mean, it's exactly what it says. You can land visually. You versus, don't need instruments. Right. And exactly. You you see the runway, you land on the runway. Easy peasy, right? We do it all the time. It's not a big deal. But what we always do or what we typically do, what I always do. Well, what you always do is it's standard practice among the airlines. Well, let's go. What do you always do? Uh, we load uh, we back it up with an instrument procedure, whether it's an ILS, which is the instrument landing system that gives us lateral and vertical guidance. Right. 
or we back it up with an RNAV procedure, which could be either the LNAV-VNAV, which is lateral and vertical as well, but it's just GPS-based. Um, and if we don't have that, we'll just back it up with just lateral guidance, which could be an LNAV, or it could just, if the ILS is not working, one of the components of an ILS is the localizer. And so we'll go into airports sometimes that don't have the full ILS, but they have the localizer, which gives us lateral guidance. We'll back it up just to make sure that we're lined up with the right runway. So okay, we'll do so, a visual backed up by the ILS. So had Air Canada, the pilots uh, have had that as a backup, they would have been able to just quick glance when they saw something was wrong, they didn't feel good about it, and they asked for the confirmation that they were cleared to land. Had they looked down, they would have seen that their their lateral guidance was showing them off. Correct. Yeah, they did not. They had not put in the ILS for runway two eight right. Okay. So then, what were the other factors you mentioned? Fatigue. Right there. So um, they were basically landing. Their body clocks were Toronto time, Toronto Canada. So they were effectively at the time in San Francisco. It was three a.m which is during that window of circadian low for pilots. Okay. And so that did contribute toward fatigue. And I'm trying to remember exactly how long they had been flying for, but I do know that they had gotten, they had not received enough rest the, in the previous day or two. And so they were definitely, um, they had accumulated fatigue over that time. So it's... Almost the equivalent of uh, drinking alcohol at that point. Um, they've tested people. They've done a lot of scientific research on individuals when they get to this level of fatigue. And it's actually like having three drinks or something. Don't quote me on that because I don't know the exact number. But it is the it's a very similar state of being impaired. And, you know, an interesting comment that was made by a retired pilot who's, who um, saw this was that, um, end quote, probably came close to the greatest aviation disaster in history. Yeah. So had these links not been broken, we're talking five aircraft, because it wouldn't have just been this airplane hits one airplane or maybe two airplanes. Oh, it would have been it fire been, everywhere. Absolutely. It would have pushed all these airplanes into each other and caused just absolute mass chaos and destruction. We are so, so fortunate that a, this did not over happen. Over a thousand passengers were at this would, risk. Yeah, this would have been almost twice that of Tenerife. It's... It's insane. When you look at the situation, you go, oh, my gosh, like this could have been the worst air crash to happen. And it really makes you think how many of these incidents actually happen without us knowing. I, I, I thought about it after we got done with our Tenerife podcast. I mean, I really thought about that one for a while. And it makes you think if one of those things, one of those links had been broken, we would have never heard about it. And the only reason why we hear about these near misses or whatever they want to call them, you know, uh, close encounters, close calls, is because we have ADSB, we have Live ATC, we have, you know, like Vast Aviation and, and some of these other um, media outlets that bring these incidents to light. This is one of those cases. It was brought to the media light, and people talked about it, which is good. Right. Um, and just, again, to illustrate how close we came to over 1,000. So the Air Canada was an Airbus A320, so not huge, equivalent to about a 737. United Airlines 
one you <laughs> was a 787-9 um, with 252 capacity. The Philippine uh, had a 340, 300 with 254. And there was another United Boeing 787-9 with 252. And finally, United Airlines 737-900 with 179. So um, it could have been a very bad night. Yeah, we're talking, like you said, close to uh, right right around 1,000 people. Okay, another thing mentioned in this accident is that um, San Francisco International was one of the first airports to install what's called an airport surface surveillance capability, ASSC. Have you read about that? Uh, Yeah, yeah. So what is that? Basically, it'll tell them when there is a potential conflict if they feel like the aircraft has lined up with either the incorrect runway or an incorrect taxiway. Okay. Now, they had that this night. So what happened? Uh, Honestly, I don't know. Okay. Well, from what I've been able to read and and study a little bit was that it disappeared from that system for about 11 seconds at at a critical time. So, And also in the tower, um, because of the lateness and and even though there were four uh, airliners waiting and five involved in this, it was a very slow time for San Francisco. There was only one controller working both ground and tower, which is unusual. That's not unusual. Not that late at night when traffic is right. typically slower. But I do know now that they don't allow that. That was one of the because things. Because of this? Yes. That was one of the things that came out of the aftermath was they have to have at least two controllers. Um, I know that another thing that came out of this as well is they're no longer allowed to issue visual approaches at night anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. At, I didn't know at that. San Francisco. Oh, at San Francisco. Just at San Francisco. Yeah. Because of the way that the runways are and because of the optical illusions, it's just, you know what? Just ILS. If it's at night, just give them the ILS. It's the safest course of action. You mentioned earlier that you always put in a backup ILS or RNAV or whatever, and you've taught that. Is it standard procedure in the airlines, best practices to back up with an ILS? Yes. It is. It is best practice to back back up your visual approach with a with an instrument approach. So the Air Canada pilots did not they broke procedures. No, they did I don't think that that was their that I don't think that was in their guidance at the time. I think it is now. I do believe that they are either required or it's considered a best practice, but um I mean, you got to remember, I mean this happened back in 2017. A lot has changed since then because of this incident and others like it, especially with some of the new stuff coming out. All of these, you know, close calls with the FedEx in the Southwest yeah. or the first half of 2023, we've had a whole bunch of of greatest accidents that never happened. Right, exactly. So our like operations manuals are being changed almost like on a, you know, monthly basis sometimes and we talk about best practices and stuff like that you know a lot of the airlines are looking at it we learn from others we don't just learn from ourselves and what we do wrong we learn from others and this is one of those situations where it may not have been best practice before but i can tell you right now it is certainly a best practice now okay so what what's um those are some of the the ways they've changed anything else that we've changed the way we we practice because of this near miss? Um, so when I was a full-time flight instructor, I would teach students, even primary students, how to use the, I mean, you do basic VOR training and stuff like that. I actually taught them how to tune in a localizer or how to load an approach into their GPS. So that way, um, 
For example, here in DFW, on the west side, a lot of us here are familiar with the fact that Navy Carswell is very close to um, Fort Worth Meacham. And several times, people land at Navy Carswell thinking that they're landing at Meacham because the runways are effectively parallel and then not that, the airports are not that far apart. And so I would teach my students, hey, it's a good idea to go ahead and back up your visual landing here with your with a localizer or with an RNAV just to make sure that you are lined up for the correct runway. Because the last thing you need is to get a phone number because you landed at the wrong airport. Um, so those are just things that we could do. Just remember, it's never too you can never be too cautious with these things even as airline pilots we all make mistakes we're human we're not infallible you know we 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 think oh you know it's no big deal visual approach going in at night i've been to this airport a dozen times you know what think things happen runways get closed you know you get last minute landing clearances or runway changes and it, it's just always best to err on the side of caution and i know that one of the other things pulled from this particular incident was um, in Canada, the Canadian version of the FAA um, upped their fatigue standards because at that point, the pilots, the Canadian pilots were legal, but the um, the captain was at 19 hours yeah. of bef- since significant rest. Right, which would have far exceeded our Part 117. Uh, rest right. requirements. And so in 2018, Canada uh, <laughs> moved their standards up. And so now uh, that's in place. That's good. So yeah, that I, I did know that too. And and the fatigue, what's interesting is, you know, with 2-8 left closed, then that makes 2-8 right and it's taxiway to the right of it almost look like 2-8 yes. left and right. And, and you know, the what they're, what the NTSB is saying is that the pilots due to fatigue and not reading that two eight left was closed contrib- all were contributing factors they were all links in the chain correct so but one all it needed was just one link to be broken and that thankfully thankfully that's what happened thank thank you to the pilots who were sitting on that taxiway who spoke up all right now a similarity to the recent close call at JFK between the um, American Airlines uh, International flight that uh, had a runway incursion as a Delta plane was starting to take off. Well, what happened is um, American Airlines, you know, went had the runway incursion and then sat there for just a little bit and then went ahead and took off for Europe, for England. And because of that, of course, the cockpit voice recorder was overridden. Similar case here. That Airbus that for Air Canada, they went on to do um, like three more flights right away. They were not told to hold those recordings. And so um, just like that JFK American Airlines, we have no idea if they, it was a distracted flight deck or not. Right. I, I, and, you know, honestly, uh, I've been there. Like I've been, you know, four-leg day. It's late. You know, you get there um, and you start feeling it. You kind of start feeling the fatigue and you're like, okay, I'm glad that we're going to the hotel after this or or whatever. I don't think it was necessarily a distracted flight deck. Um, I think that the likely scenario here was that they were, they needed rest. They were impaired. They didn't realize that they were necessarily impaired and they started making mistakes. And I, 
I believe that one of the contributing factors to them not backing up their visual approach with an ILS was that level of impairment that they had. I'm just so glad that they were able to break that link, come around, um, you know, and, and then land. I mean, honestly, good on everybody involved. It's hard to place all this blame on the pilots. You know, it, it's not just the pilots of the Air Canada who are at fault here. It was the system that was broken. Unfortunately, this is one that we learned not written in blood. Right. It was almost, but it wasn't. And I can only hope that future um, incidents like this we can learn from and then make changes to to prevent things from happening in the future. Well, I, it sounds like, to me, I still place a significant um, responsibility on the pilots of Air Canada. Oh, absolutely. I said we can't blame it all on them. Not all on them, but significant amount. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, they, they should have done certain things. But at the end of the day, yeah, the system was broken. The system is what placed them in that situation. Whenever there's an NTSB investigation, um, be it a an incident like this versus an accident or a crash, the NTSB, when they get involved, oftentimes they will make recommendations to the FAA. And a lot of um, people who don't understand think that that's just automatic, that you know the NTSB is almost a synonym for the FAA, and it is not true. They're two totally different governmental organizations. And I would say the the norm is for the NTSB to make recommendations that the FAA does not implement. And so there were um, recommendations from the NTSB from this in 2017 to increase the CVR recording time to 25 hours from its current two and clearly that hasn't uh, – the FAA has not implemented that. So there's a lot of things the FAA – or the NTSB will recommend that the FAA does not choose to implement. And and for reason. It's not like they're just being rude or whatever. The FAA takes in a lot of different things into account as to why they may or may not take a recommendation from the NTSB. It could it could put an undue uh, financial burden on pilots, you know, or whatever. Yeah, I'm thinking more in gen- general aviation terms, but you know, there's a lot of things that that happen that you got to consider all the the ramifications, not just oh, it's safety. You know, why aren't they doing it? You know, right. why aren't they putting CVRs in in every little Piper or Cessna aircraft out there? Because uh, yeah, because there's bigger implications there. It, it puts adds an undue weight. Yeah. It, it, it adds cost, et cetera. By the way, I just want to point out. I looked it up. Um, that LAX runway collision I was talking about with the Skywest. It was a U.S. Air, and it was in 1991. 1991. Yeah. So that that was another one that we could definitely talk about. That was one that actually did happen though, and right. that was that was that was not terrible. a one, that was not a near miss. All right, so this was the worst accident that never happened. The worst accident that never happened. Okay, I'll leave this, close it with a quote from then um, chairman of the NTSB, Robert Sumwalt, who I've actually talked to before, and we've almost had him on the show, and maybe someday we will. Um, Here's his quote I'm going to leave with, because in talking about the need to improve the NOTAM system that the that we have here and recently went down in a mess as well. So here's his quote. It's a bunch of garbage that nobody pays attention to. And, you know, the Air Canada pilots did not read the, the NOTAM that 28 left was closed and blah, blah, blah. 
It's because the NOTAM system is garbage. It's it's 38 pages of, you know, um, there's a, a light out on a tower 16 miles from the airport, and it just gets lost, and, and we do need. What are your thoughts on that? I really like the way, this is not a plug for ForeFlight, but I really like the way that ForeFlight breaks down the NOTAMs for pilots. And a lot of times I'll actually use ForeFlight before I begin a flight for work because I like the way that it breaks it down. It says, hey, here's the NOTAMs that are like, you know, for around the airport, these are the NOTAMs that are specific to the airport right now. It'll actually tell you what, because the NOTAMs also include things from the past, like previous, things that are coming up in the future. And ForeFlight does a really, really great job of breaking all that down so that all I have to do is go to the correct tab and look and see, okay, the airport, all right, what's current right now? Okay, good. Now I know that this runway is closed. It really does, uh, it get weeds through the garbage so that we can get to what we actually need versus the light on the tower 25 miles away from the airport. All right, very good. Well, thank you guys for listening to this podcast of The Greatest Accident That Never Happened. Greatest and accident? You said greatest accident. I know, greatest, as far as greatest tragedy, greatest okay. greatest number of fatalities. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, to me it's like Not, the worst. Okay, the, or, all right. So, <laughs> semantics. So the worst. Thank you for joining us for listening to the worst accident that never happened. So I appreciate you guys listening to our podcast. And if you're listening on YouTube, uh, we'll throw some visuals up there. If you're listening on Spotify and Apple Music and all those other places, well, we won't have that. You're just going to have to pretend. Just pretend. You can always go to YouTube, though, leave us comments. And we appreciate you guys. And as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.